Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Skyping's Self-help from the hip. Small doses. We're talking that shit. Small doses. Keeping it real. Small doses. With me and Nancy Seals. It's so funky. So, folks, today begins the first ever of my Small Doses Artist Series. And I'm very excited because we are popping things off, jumping things off with somebody who is much more than Michelle Obama's portrait artist, okay? So I want to start us off there. Even though that may have been the entry point to many of you all to her work, Miss Amy Sherald has been at this game, baby, for quite some time. And we are so honored to have you here on Small Doses. And let me make it be known that she did inform me that, like, she don't really be doing this, but she fuck with me. So that's why she's doing it. <laughs> and I will take that and receive that wholeheartedly. Yes. It's a pleasure to meet you. I, I, I do adore you very much. Ditto. Thank you very much. So, you know, I wanted to start this series because, and you actually mentioned this a bit off camera, how like, you know, if people are not like in the art world, if they're not art heads, then they're not necessarily up on like black art or just on art. But there's a number of reasons why like folks need to just be up on art. And if for all of our capitalists out there on a basic note, it's because art appreciates. So you could buy all the... Dodge chargers in the world, but they're never going to add up to an art piece that can actually continue to grow and be a part of legacy and it's an heirloom, et cetera. And I'm always just wanting black folks to consider other ways that we continue to grow wealth because we all know that unless the aliens come and like eradicate everything and we go back to using cowrie shells, like that's going to be the uh, wealth and education, I believe, are like the, the, the way out. But nonetheless, so tell us. On a basic, I know you've been asked this question a million times, but what brought you to the canvas? I always say this is what I was born to do. I don't know what else I would be doing. Like second grade, I was drawing. Maybe I would have been a chef or like a wine sommelier or something like that. Because I worked as a waitress till I was like 37 to support myself. Um, With the work. Right. But um, it's in my blood. It's in my bones. And when I say that, I think about my mother, who was born in 1935 in Mobile, Alabama. And she was a painter and went to one year of art school. But being an artist wasn't something that was like a possibility. You know what I mean? Like, even when I told her I wanted to be an artist, she still didn't understand what that meant. And although she encouraged me all through my childhood, I had art classes three days a week and all of that. And she was still surprised when I said that I wanted to go to school and not be a dentist, but be a painter, right? So she legit didn't start taking me seriously until like, uh, I remember uh, at the unveiling of the portraits, we were walking back to the press room to take pictures. And um, Barack was like, you must be really proud of your daughter. And she looked at him and she was like, well, I gotta be honest with you. I didn't really think this art thing was gonna work out. You You sure your mother's not West Indian? This sounds very, very Caribbean. And I'm like, wow, mom. But yeah, I mean, she was the kind of mother that I needed because I needed somebody to prove wrong. 
And I spent 38, 39, 40 years doing that until it finally, you know, started to to happen. Like you're always waiting for that break. And my break was the Atwin Butifer portrait competition with the Smithsonian. And um, she came to the press preview and they wanted to interview her. And she was like, wow, like you're kind of a big deal. And I'm like, I told you. <laughs> We've all had that moment, right? Like I had this, um, I had like checked Caitlyn Jenner at this dinner and it like went viral. I say that all the time. I was like, <laughs> I was like one of the best. Thank you. And my mom didn't like even like insecure had been on for like i mean i think maybe like two seasons at that point like she like she just was not getting it and then like we went to florida mall or we went to like the mall of millennia in orlando and i got recognized three different times but specifically by three different groups of people it was like a straight guy like a gay guy and then like a white girl my mom was like you're really doing something out there in Los Angeles. I'm like, you know, lady, I it took Mall of Millennia and people recognizing me here for you to really feel like I was doing something. But you're right. It's like that. It keeps you humble, too, you know, and it keeps you like pushing. It does. It does. But baby, I think we're the same age. Are you an 81 baby? I'm 73. You're 73? Yeah, I'm old, girl. <laughs> I feel like I'm almost 50. I just turned 48. But it's like, I feel like I'm almost 50. No, you can't feel like you're almost 50. You don't look like you're almost 50 because melanin. It's amazing. I think aging is wonderful. And maybe because I feel like I still look cute. <laughs> if I didn't look cute, maybe I wouldn't be like... <laughs> but yeah, I'm 73, born in the South. Like, just still the fumes of like the civil rights movement was like still in the air in Georgia and Columbus where I was born. It was, it was still very much like a black and white city growing up there. In that respect, were this, was this, so you said you went to art classes three times a week. Like were those classes diverse or like what were you facing in those moments? It was, um, you know, I mean, my parents wanted what was best for me. And, you know, my mom came from an era where, I mean, people were still, it's weird to think this way, but like light-skinned people were marrying light-skinned people. Like it was still like very much mm-hmm. about um, making sure that your child can assimilate, which is why my name is Amy, you know, like not uh, accentuating the differences, you know? So my brother and I, we both went to private Catholic schools and we were the only black people in the school. Like there was me and this other guy named Ken and like that was it. And, um, Ken, yo. Shout to Ken. No, <laughs> like Ken kind of wasn't on the team. <laughs> By the way, I was in the same situation and his name was Kenny. Oh, wow. That's funny. And he wasn't on the team. Yeah, so it wasn't. I mean, my art teacher was a white woman named Jerry Davis. And um, bless her heart, she was the first person to teach me that I should be painting my own ideal, you know? that painting white ballerinas and like all the other stuff that I was looking at wasn't what I should be drawing about. Like I should be drawing about myself and telling my own story. But yeah, it was, you know, it's an experience that shaped me. And, you know, I left, I went to school with the same people from K to 12, right? So St. Anne's, Michelle, oh, wow. and then I left to go to HBCU. But it was just an interesting dynamic because if, despite the fact that I went to school with the same people for 12 years, I didn't feel very connected to them at all. You know, was it just because you were the one black girl or was it also because like they just made no effort 
to have any connection? I feel like I was always neutral. You know, like by the time we got to high school, there were, it was a high school of 400 people and there were probably about 20 black people out of 400. And I always remained neutral. Like they would kind of talk about the other black girls, maybe because my dad was a dentist and they were like, you know, these girls go to this school and they could pay the tuition, but they're not like us. You're black, but you're not like black, black. Yeah, it was a lot of that. It was a lot of that. Because in Columbus, people, like, even in the church I grew up in, people didn't understand how my mom could be brown and me and my brother could be light-skinned with brown hair and he has blue eyes. and You know what I mean? Like, yeah. there was a lot of white people that had not experienced Black people until they met me in high school that were like, you put car oil in your hair? Or just craziness. Like, your parents <laughs> aren't doing your job. Like, they, they need to... <laughs> your parents are like, they're not doing a good job raising you. It still amazes me to this day that because I've like gone to colleges in the middle of, you know, behind God's back, Pennsylvania. And you're I'd be like speaking to audiences of kids who are like, I've never seen a black person until I came to this school. And you're like, but I, I mean, you're missing out. Uh, <laughs> we're fabulous. <laughs> but I can't be the only black person. I'm sorry. Like, I can't be your only black friend. So go get five. Friends and they talk. So what made you decide, you know what, I got to go to this HBCU? I needed to be, I just needed to be around my people. I mean, that's just how I felt. Because it could have gone another way. You know what I'm saying? Like, you could have been like, you know what, I'm light bright. I'm going to just lean in and call it. Light bright, old yeller, big beige. I had all the names. (laughs) You know, my dad went to Morgan. Yeah, that's that's not exactly how they say it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my dad went to Morehouse. He went to dental school at Howard. And okay. it just felt like, you know, you're just on in a different way. And I think for the first time, like going to Clark Atlanta and just being me and like, you know, you, you don't have to like decode anything. Like if you get a bad grade, your ass just got a bad grade. Like it's not because, you know, you know, having to like yes. set people's intentions. And I felt like, I could just be in my body in a different way. Mm. I really needed that. How did your art shift in that from that transition? I mean, I, I mean, our art shifts yeah. over the the of our lifetime. Like I'm in a moment right now where I hate everything I've ever painted, and like I put it up, but I'm like, like I love that. I love that. It's like hung all over your house. At this point, it's immersion therapy. <laughs> it's like you need to still love these pieces. <laughs> I hate everything I paint too. It still, it will never leave you. Some days I walk in and I'm like, I don't even know why I'm here. Like this is, all these paintings are stupid. And then sometimes I'm like, I'm the bomb and this is great, you know? But it it changed from, um, you know, when I went to college, I met my first like real live working artist. And he just happened to be a Panamanian and he was my painting instructor. And he gave me the vision that I needed to understand that this is something that I could actually do. How did he do that? Because we have a lot of creatives that listen to this podcast. And I feel like that's a question that they ask me all the time. And my answer is often just that, like, it's different for everybody. You know, like everyone kind of is ignited in that course by different things. Like for me, you know, it's one thing for you. It's another. So what was it about what he illuminated to you that made you be like, oh, I can do this? For me, one, it was it was meeting a man that was selling prints on the Ave. And the Ave is like the street that went through campus. And he was just selling like black art, like posters and stuff. And um, 
one day I was like, I'm an artist. And he was like, oh yeah, you know, let me see some of your work. So I run back to my dorm, I come back and I have this, this drawing that I did with Prisma pencil and ink. And it's like a picture of a African woman with like a red turban on and she's crying a tear. And I torn out of a newspaper and put it on backwards, two words that said racial imbalance. And um, it got entered into a competition at University of Georgia and I got like honorable mention or something. So like, it was my pride and joy. And I showed it to him and he's like, are you an art major? I'm like, no, I'm pre-med. Cause like, you know, my dad wanted me to take over dental practice and whatnot. And he was like, you know, if you don't use your talent, you'll lose your talent. And that's what triggered me to change my major without telling my parents. And, you know, meeting Arturo Lindsay and him sending us to see a show of his at a gallery in Atlanta. And I was like, this is amazing. Like, you know, I had two moments. That was my second moment. And the first moment was seeing a painting of a Black man in the museum when I was in the sixth grade. And that painting was made by a white man who was painting himself as a black man. But I didn't know at the time. It was a self-portrait black man. <laughs> yeah. We need to get him on the show. I'm like, so tell, walk me through the journey. <laughs> um, so that was the introduction. And I think it just started there. Like, I just knew it was what I wanted to do. I don't know how to describe it, but it's all I ever put my focus on. Like, I never put my focus on anything else. I never got caught up in like, Trying to be a cool kid or like... I mean, you were trying to please your parents. I was trying you to please You almost got caught up. But then Arturo Lindsay was like, yeah. come on now. You better get that racial imbalance tear out here to the people. And I had to beg to be put in his class because it was already overbooked because everybody already wanted to be in his class. And so he had too many students in and then one student dropped out. So I was able to get in. Who's that one student? Can we send them an Amazon gift card? Like, thank you. I don't know. But yeah, so I started painting and I didn't know where to start. Like, how do you start painting? Like, you, you know. So you weren't painting up until that point. You were using what medium? You know, I did like the obligatory Miles Davis, you know, like I would open up National Geographic and like find a picture that I wanted to copy. You know what I mean? So right. I hadn't found my own voice yet. It was just like landscapes and bunnies. And watercolor or acrylic or oil? What medium? In my after school classes, we did watercolor, oil and acrylic. Oh. We did it all. I don't fuck with oil. I don't like it. I don't... You would like it if you use a dryer. I don't do wet on wet. I'm not interested in it. It sucks. <sighs> it's, it's mud. Yeah. But if you use liquid, then it's dry the next day, like acrylic. So you have the whole day to work it out. It like stays and then you stop at a certain point and you come back in. The next day it's dry. So it's like layer by layer. Okay. Acrylic is like instant gratification. You can just paint, 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 paint until your heart's desire. But oil gives you the manipulation that you don't have with acrylic. And it's kind of interesting to do. In my later life, I plan to really commit myself to my art. Uh, yeah. And my mom has always said, well, you know, TV is going to get you rich, but the painting's going to make you wealthy. And I'm like, I don't know if that's actually true, but it's nice to think so. <laughs> Grenada. Okay. Yeah, my partner's from Trinidad, so I... I'm listening to you and I feel like I'm, I'm talking to Edwina. Well, all Trinidadians are actually like one generation from Grenada. I mean, I'm sure Edwina would be like, oh, well, you know, my grandmother is Grenadian. Like yeah. that's like, it's, it's right there. Same cuisine, same yeah. food, better beaches. Yeah. There's that. There's that. So come on by, stop on by the, the Spice Island and, and come and check us out. But I really, <laughs> I really just love hearing... 
people's process to how they realize what their style was. Because style is tough. It is tough. It's your whole identity. You have to figure out what your DNA is. And it could take, I didn't make that first painting that I knew was like going to be the rest of my life paintings until mm. I was 34. What? I say you make a whole lot of shitty work before you make some good work. So like in undergrad, I started with self-portraits and then I was painting these alien women that had external spinal cords and they communicated through mental telepathy and like the world had been blown up and this dragon goddess named Grisefa had come down and like taking these women back to her planet. It was just like, and I had never- Where's the graphic novel? I want to read it. (laughs) So it was that for a while. And at that time I had my head shaved. Oh, so you were in it like- Well, not really, but like- (laughs) To my mom, it was like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> I got a gray piercing. I got two tattoos that I'm literally getting removed, like, now. What are they of? Please tell me. No, they're, like, embarrassing. No! It is really bad. It's really bad. Wait. That one? You can't really see it. Is this? Like a Chinese character. I was going to say, is this a Chinese character? <laughs> Long and tall. And then the Big other beige. One, <laughs> says painting on a canvas. It was one of those things where like you wake up, you're 21, you got like $50 and you go to the tattoo parlor and realize that you can't afford anything. And so you like go to the wall, you're like, I'll take that one. But I think I went to like a Chinese to English dictionary. I have a tramp stamp. So. Yeah. I have a tramp stamp too. But when you get tattoos removed, it's a, we're getting it's sidetracked. A whole th- we're never sidetracked, but it's a whole thing. Because it's a laser and it hurts, right? Yeah, they numb my arm. So I was trying to get all of them removed at one time. So I have like that Cisco dragon on my neck. You remember what the dragon? <gasps> oh, oh, I remember the dragon. Enter the dragon. So that was gone. Unleash the dragon. You can only get so much lidocaine in your body at one time. So they... Oh. I'm just getting these now because they're the most important. So they just numb this so you don't feel it. But when I was trying to get them all numb... They can only numb like parts of it. And it's the worst pain I've ever felt in my life. Have you ever had an IUD put in? Yes. And it was the, wow. It was literally just like holding fire to your arm, like consistently, okay. because it's, it's burning the skin basically, or however it does. It's, the skin turns white. It's weird. Because when I got an IUD put in, I thought, you know what? This is, I don't ever need, this is the worst I've literally looked at the doctor and was like, please stop it. (laughs) I I like cursed them all out and was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So the television producer in me is like, I think there's a show with Graceffa. And (laughs) it was weird. It was, it was, I just, I had to make up my own world. Yeah. I heard powers from the series A star and the series B star, which is like where the Maasai warriors, right? Kenya. Yeah, where they feel very connected to those stars. So it went from that to some really bad work in grad Wait, school. Why was it bad work? I call it my Sarah McLaughlin phase. <laughs> it was like a lot of cocoons and feathers and like in me. On a rock in the ocean. Far away from here. (laughs) 
I love this because it's really, I feel like a lot of people don't understand. And particularly because I feel like this generation, I won't even say this generation, but all of us in this world right now, like if we're on social media, even in the most benign of ways, there's just this expectancy for perfection. And it's like when you're in process, like no one's too good to not be good. Like, I think right. that that's like an incredibly important part of an artist's career and their process. And, you know, while you're in that moment, you think you're killing it. But Ira Glass has a really good talk on taste. And I share it with anybody who asks me about process because, you know, at the time you're like, yeah, this is popping. And then, you know, you start to transition and that awkward phase of like, oh, shit, I don't like my shit is actually the bridge to like you about to have a new breakthrough. So it's like, just like push through. Would you agree? Yeah. You just have to keep working. You just have to make the bad stuff and you're going to think it's great. And when you look back, you're going to be like, my friends aren't my friends. They tell me my work was like this whack. But I try to teach my students that because I feel like they think that it should just be like perfect the first time. And I didn't really learn that. I thought I wasn't a good writer, but I didn't realize in my thirties that it's like multiple drafts, you know what I mean? For some reason, I was under the assumption that people just like sit down and they write something and it comes out perfect the first time and I was struggling and then I just wasn't smart enough to like figure it out and I wasn't a good writer. But I realized that my writing process is exactly the same as my painting process, which it's a process. You start painting, you unpaint some stuff, you might start over. I mean, until you figure out what it is that you're doing. And I don't believe in like mental blocks. I think that yeah. some people just don't have, they haven't lived enough to have enough to like build a visual language around it. You know what I mean? It, Ooh, it takes say more, say more. It just takes life to, to make work. You know, if you want it to be important, if you want it to be sophisticated, if you want it to tell a story, if you want it to, you know, whatever you want it to speak to, it takes life in order to make good work. Otherwise, you you know, you might just be pushing pain around, like you're just kind of pushing pain around. But I think if you're really thinking about being an artist, then it's really about developing, like connecting to a narrative. And like before I became known for what I do now, I was trying to figure out like what my voice would be amongst all my contemporaries. And at that point in time, like nobody knew who I was. And I was looking at different Black artists and I'm like, if we were all sitting down in a room, who would I be? Like, how would I speak up amongst all these other voices? And I had an epiphany and I realized that at that moment, and this was like in 2008, that nobody was making work about Black people just being themselves. Like everything was a didactic moment or about our revolution revolution or whatever but i realized that i, I think i was leaving kara walker's exhibition at the whitney and her work is really powerful and i realized in that moment that there has to be this like resting place for us to come to see ourselves reflected in ways that are beautiful and thoughtful and present and you know self-satisfied and just being us without all of the other stuff that, you know, we, I, I feel like, and I really went through this because I spent from 30 to 40 years old in my mind, I was going to die when I was 40 because I was like, I have heart failure. I've been living with it for this long. You don't when know. When were you gonna... diagnosed with heart failure? 
at 30, coming out of grad school, I was diagnosed. So I had eight, my heart function was at 18%. And did you just like, was it like you noticed it over time or just like one day it was like... No, I never had any symptoms. So you know how athletes just like be playing basketball and all of a sudden they die? It just would have been one of those things. Because I was training for a triathlon, but I just happened to go to a doctor and they just happened to run these tests and we just happened to find out. So I lived with it for a long time, but you know people die waiting for organs all the time. So in my mind, I'm like, well, this is it, you know? So I really have to figure this stuff out. Uh, I see. You felt like your mortality was pushing you to identify what your purpose was. Yeah. My purpose and like just who I am, like who am I besides Amy Sherald, born in the South, daughter of Amos and Geraldine Sherald, taught who to worship, how to dress, how to act, what Black is, what Black ain't. You know what I mean? Like it's, it felt so limiting and I really just wanted to get down to like the bottom of who we were outside of this dominant historical narrative that it's very easy, I think, to only view yourself in a way that you're being viewed, mm. right? So like I wanted to become aware of myself by myself and of myself with my own gaze versus always being in a reactionary space of other people, you know? And part of that is just like having to go to to all white schools and like constantly being put in a place where you have to perform and and not really realizing that I was performing until I moved back home at 30 to help my mom, like older women in our family. And I was the one that didn't have a job. So like I moved back home to, um, to be a caregiver. And then I realized that, you know, there's a lot of me that I, you know, I turn on and off in these moments where had I grown up somewhere else, I might not even be that way. You know, so the work for me was just about getting down to the bottom. How did you get down to the bottom? Was there therapy? Was it meditation? Was it just like, I'm not talking to people that I used to talk to? Like, what was the like pragmatic way? Or was it literally just being like, I'm going to listen to myself more? Yeah, it was about listening to myself more. It was about, I think the first thing I think was like becoming an advocate of like the religious faith that I was brought up in, which was like a non-denominational church that we went to church on Saturday. We kept the Sabbath. I couldn't watch cartoons on Saturday morning. Like, so it was like lights out from Friday to Saturday. We celebrated like all these holy days, um, day of atonement, fasted, days of 11 bread, like all that stuff. And um, learning how to think on my own, not being afraid to do that. Because for me, when it comes to religion, there's something I have to give up some of my own power in a way. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like the way that that felt. I didn't like that my mom, you know, taught me that only Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John can have these revelations. Like I wasn't smart enough to like have God speak to me too. You know what I mean? So I have to like rely on this other person to tell me how to be in the world. Like, I don't think so. Especially not as a Virgo woman. I'm like, forget that. Like oh, I'm my own. Virgo rising over here. Yeah. No, you can't. I mean, it's just, and it's just nonsensical. For Virgos, it's like the logic isn't here. It's illogical. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I, I think portrait by portrait, I was working my way through to this thing that I was really only given the language for two years ago when I came across a book by this writer named Kevin Kwashi, and it's called The Sovereignty of Quiet. And he talks about the Black interior. And then Elizabeth Alexander's book is called The Black Interior. And it really speaks to our private identity versus the public identity 
And that's what the work is really about. And that's why it's to me, like it's so important that like portraits are front facing, that they're um, meeting the gaze of the viewer. And I want the images to be considered universal, but I also understand that they can be employed in many different ways. You know, I had a fear in the beginning of the work being marginalized because I didn't want the conversation solely to be about identity because it was something I was trying to free myself from. And I don't mean like free myself from my blackness, but free myself to become what I feel like constantly living in a reactionary space limits you from becoming. If you're in a relationship with somebody and you're constantly arguing, like you lose touch with yourself. And I think, you know, the black struggle is real and the fight for civil rights is real and the fight for equality is real. And at times I almost felt guilty for just needing to separate myself from that. I could really get down to the nitty gritty of who I was. But, you know, Kevin talks about these different Black female writers that wrote that way through the 1900s and that, you know, were on that same journey. So I felt affirmed in that. And I want the work to offer, when you go into a museum space and see a painting by me, I want my work to offer that that up to the people that look like us. I'm glad I asked. I am glad I asked. You see, here's the thing, you know, because... And and you're exceptionally good at this. And I, my, I wonder, were you always this articulate about your work? Because I think a lot of times as artists, like, we know what's in our mind and we put it out there. And then when someone's like, so what is this? It's like, I mean, you know. Uh... <laughs> it depends on who I'm talking to. And that's like the woes of an introvert. Because, like, some people will meet me and be like, she's amazing. And some people will be like, that chick is awkward as fuck. <laughs> you know, it just like depends on the day and who it is, the energy, like it's a wind blowing to the left. But it takes time. It takes being quiet and sitting and, you know, it takes being quiet and just reading. And Were you in a relationship at the time? No. Uh-uh. I met the love of my life when I was 43 or 44. I really think it's an important thing to know. Yeah. I'm glad because I... I get less work done now. <laughs> I'm like, can we break up for two months? Just <laughs> Yeah, I, I had the opportunity. And, and it's hard for me to tell people this, you know, especially young female artists, because I don't know if it's 100% true. I just know it's true for me. That's all that matters. It's like, I'm not sure I would be here had I got caught up in a relationship. You know what I mean? Like, I'm 48. I don't have any kids. We're, like, trying to have kids now. We're, like, thinking about adoption and doing all this other stuff. I also wish somebody told me to freeze my eggs. But, you know... You can have mine. I'm not going to use them. (laughs) I'm not sure sure I would be here. Like, this is something that you have to give 150%. You cannot be comfortable. You have to be comfortable with risk. And that goes for any... That goes for acting. That goes for anything. It's like mm-hmm. nothing to get in the way of this. I didn't care whether people were like, what is Amy doing with her life? She's 36 years old. She's waiting tables. I don't care. Like I knew exactly what I was doing. And so no, no relationships. And he came at the right time. He came at the right time because I was too busy before then. I mean, I see, I see young people. Like I saw like a, a meme the other day that was just like, I'm 29 and I've never been in a relationship and I, and like, it was very, it was very sad. Like, and I was like, y'all got time. Like, like a 29 just feels, I just turned 40. 29 feels like yeah, I am 
pushing a baby stroller with a doll in it. Like, that's like, 29 really feels like, that was Barbies and Legos, right? It's like, actually, no. Um, but it just feels so far away. And I, I remember feeling that way. And then around 34, moving to LA and really just committing to like, I gotta figure this shit out. Like, if a nigga come around, a nigga come around. But I gotta figure this shit out. And if it diverts me from figuring this shit out, then I gotta like divert uh, from them. Yeah. So I, it's interesting to hear you speak on that because it is a decisive thing. And yeah. I think sometimes we don't want to admit that to ourselves. And there is a dance that you're doing with time. Yeah. There really is. And I don't think it's a matter of like, but can't I just have it all? Can't we women have it all? Because there is that conversation too. Like, why are you saying that there has to be one or the other? And I don't think it's that there has to be one or the other, but there definitely has to be space. Yeah. And oftentimes there just isn't. Yeah. You won't know until, you know, I, I have a friend who got married at 28. She has three kids now. She just started pursuing her career like five years ago. The youngest girl is four. And she, so she, she did it backwards. Mm -hmm. Did it, you know, but it's just how it works for me. I just know that I'm very like all in. So it's like, (laughs) I wasn't going to be able to just be with somebody without it. Just taking all of my, my cat's throwing up behind me. (laughs) Lando. Oh, well, I'll clean that up. (laughs) Um, I mean, it was just me and Lando for, for, for a long time. But I really feel like so much of just being an artist is identifying with yourself and learning you. And that is what ends up coming out like in the canvas or in your music or in your writing. It's like I feel more confident now as an artist than I ever have because I know myself better than I ever have. I think part of that was COVID, you know, and the quarantine of things and kind of just like being centered and silent longer than I'd gotten the chance to be for like a very long time. And when you said, when you're arguing with people, how that like is like removing you or when you're reactionary, like it's removing you, like that really hit me because there's also you having to take accountability for like your control Mm -hmm. in those scenarios. Like how much are you contributing to you choosing to keep Mm -hmm. arguing with people and to be reactionary? And like, sometimes it's a hard decision to excise yourself from these places, even if it's just in the name of you. And sometimes maybe you don't want to admit that it's you, but it's like, yeah, I have to do it for the art. I yeah. have to do it for the art. It is hard. And then I also realized that you're really in your work when you can go through a breakup and your ass can still get up and go do what you do. Say it! <laughs> That's when you know, like, this is my shit. Like, I'm in it now. You know, waiting for inspiration and you break up with your boyfriend. You're like, I can't paint right now because I'm too upset. I'm like, you ain't there yet. You're not there yet. You're not taking this shit serious. <laughs> That's real. That's real. Because, listen, then you be living with somebody. So is the argument going to, like, really, like, take you off? And I know, like, I, I'm not there yet. Because the argument can take me out my bag. Yeah. And I have to, like, really, like, recenter. With writing, it doesn't do that. But with visual art, if I am in any way <laughs> just disrupted, it's like, oh, I, 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 I can't. I can't. But you said something in this conversation that when I tell you, like, 
I got to really sit on this. I got to like chat with the ancestors about it. And you were saying that you had to have a conversation with yourself about like, if I'm sitting around a bunch of black artists, like what's my identity in the conversation? Like, what am I bringing to the canon? And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's so just literal because it also, but it also encourages you to like, see what's out there. And I think sometimes folks are afraid to see what's out there. I've heard artists say like, I don't want to see other people's work because I don't want to be influenced by other people's work. And I'm like, "Mm." I think it's good to go to an art fair, like the Armory or like Art Basel, and you get to see what's happening all over the world at one time, you know, especially with young Black artists that have been my students or like that I've been mentors of. I feel like it's hard for us to get ahead because we learn our history and then we make work inspired by that history. So I feel like every generation is going to like make work about the brown paper bag test or like, you know what I mean? It's Mm, like the crate challenge. You keep repeating and like learn your history, but then start from here, like figure out how you can speak to that without recycling the idea. Without being derivative. Without being derivative and like so direct you know because like that's been done before and it's been done brilliantly um so you have to figure out who you are inside of art history like i mean i think that's why like hindi wiley's work is it was so smart and it really pushed figurative painting forward because art historians were able to look at his work and see art history in it Mm. you know it's, it's it's just kind of brilliant like, this is really brilliant, the way that he incorporated European art history and then put in Black bodies. And flipped the whole script. And flipped the it whole was script. Hamilton before Hamilton. Like, reclaiming these, like, I'm reclaiming time. Like, that's, mm-hmm. I mean, I focus on the American art canon and American stories. And that's, you know, that's what's really important to me is to represent those stories that were never told and then create my own, you know, at the same time. So your titles be cracking me up because to me, they're random, which is why we will address them in a second. But they remind me of YouTube video titles because like people only like my 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 social media managers. always like, y'all got to make better YouTube titles. Like people aren't going to just watch a video because you said it's side effects of Amy Cheryl. Like they're going to be like, no, it needs to be like Amy Cheryl. Don't fuck with Usher. Like it needs to have like. <laughs> It needs to have like pop and it's like panache. And so I, I want to definitely talk about your titles. But before we talk about your art, because I want you to take us through some pieces. Art as commerce is such a just sticky situation, I feel. And so I would love for you to just like talk to us about where it lives for you. And like, how do you walk that line of like, well, this is what the market wants. Because it really is a pressure once you have to live off your work. Uh, to be aware of what is out there and what is creating, you know, income. Yeah. Once you're making money off of what you do, it's no longer a passion. It's your job, first of all. So it it feels very different. I tried not to pay attention to the market. There's a lot of things happening now with um, Black artists. There's almost like a frenzy around us, which is kind of creepy. It's just weird. I'm waiting for the dust to settle to like see who's actually still going to be there once it's all over. But the market, it's weird because so in the art world, your market value 
based on like who represents you as your gallery, you know? So if you have Mm -hmm. a smaller gallery, then maybe they're only able to sell work from $6,000 to like $50,000. And then you have like the global galleries and people aren't buying work from those galleries until the market value is a million dollars. And, you know, so it's all kind of like smoke and mirror-ish. You don't want your work to go to an auction, like secondary market. Like you see works going to Sotheby's and Phillips because if it sells for too high. So say, for example, if a younger artist sold a lot of work when they were coming out, mm-hmm. all of a sudden they were famous. Mm-hmm. One of the collectors decides to take the work to auction. And Sotheby's projects that the sales are going to be like, 50 to 100,000 for that one work. And then it ends up selling for 800,000. So then you have to try to figure out how to mine that gap between what your market value is and what that piece sold for, because you can't just increase your market value to $800,000 because you might not be able to sustain you know, collectors may not want to buy your work at that price and you can't go backwards. You can only go forward. So it's like so many, there's so many things to think about. And like the one, one thing that I did do in the beginning of my career was I was very careful about who I sold my work to and who I placed it with, mm. because had I not been, I would be screwed right now. So wow. like I have that purchased a work for like less than $10,000. The work now is worth a whole lot of money. I don't like to talk about my prices in public, but you know, some collectors buy to flip. So they buy your work and they flip it. It's a hustle. Like they flipping you like houses. Right. And so it's just really important to make sure that you're selling to the right collectors, that they're collectors that are committed to you and what you do, that when they do resell, they'll take it back through the gallery and they're not going to go to Sotheby's because they think they can make more money. And I think, you know, there's a lot of Black artists like whose works are going up right now in the auctions because... It's the fad. Yeah, of our popularity... I'm not going to say at the moment, but amongst them. Right. No, it's like a trend for them. So it's like, let's do this right now. You see like that. We're just starting out. Like people don't realize that like in all of our history from cavemen to present, Black artists weren't even shown in real spaces until like the 1930s and 40s. Like not in a real gallery. Like when we talk about Monet and Klimt and all these people, like Black artists were not their contemporaries in terms of the commercial space. No, it was like in Chicago and I think in Baltimore in like 1938 or something like that. Like Romare Bearden and Jacob Lawrence, they were given at the Baltimore Museum and like one institution in Chicago. Other than that, they were showing at the YMCA. Like nobody was paying attention. You know, the value just wasn't there. And now, you know, in hindsight, these older Black artists that are finally getting their due. Faith Ringel, yeah. They're literally dying like five years later, you know, because they're in their 70s and 80s. It's insane. I think it's really dope. Congratulations that the Breonna Taylor uh, portrait piece that you did is now in the African-American History Museum. And when you did that piece, I mean, I'm not going to ask you like what made you do that piece, obviously. That's obvious. When you do a piece, though, how do you decide pieces that you keep for you and pieces that you give to the world? Or is there a distinction? Yeah, I mean, I just... From my last show in LA, I just kept my first piece because I could like actually afford to do it. In the beginning, I was like, I literally had to sell everything. It's like, I had to pay my bills, you know? Which piece did you keep? Hope is the thing with feathers. Is it in my book? 
not burgundy, but she's got a burnt orange dress on. No, no, no. That's 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 from a show at. Um, oh, it's not in this one. Okay. In, uh, St. Louis, Mocha. Yes. What made you keep that piece? Something about it. I don't know. Like I just really like it. I don't know. Some pieces you don't want to part with. Mm-hmm. I'm okay parting with all of them, but like also keeping your work as an artist, it's like your retirement plan as well. So you wait till your prices go up, and then you can sell and like. Right. So, um, yeah, I just, just my connection to them. Like, I really like that one. It was really simple. It only had four colors in the whole painting and I just really loved it. And then with Brianna, obviously that's not a painting that can be sold. Right. So like, I can only imagine like if, if I had like sold that painting to the MoMA or something like she doesn't belong to the MoMA. Right. And so I had to make a decision about what I wanted to do with it. And for me, it was important that it go to, to her hometown of Louisville so conversation started with the Speed Museum and then we brought in a Black curator and then Promise Witness Remembrance was the child born from all of that. And so her portrait being the key focus and the exhibition being about gun violence in general. So the Blacksonian, I call it the Blacksonian, and <laughs> they both own the painting. So it was co-acquired. Okay. And I'm donating the money to an institution in Louisville for scholarships and fellowships for students that are interested in social you could be a you, you could be, be an be ally right you can be at anything but but they'll have scholarships throughout their four-year undergraduate degree and for law students that want to work in public interest so say like a brian stevens and you know he went to alabama and did that work for free he would be able to get a brianna taylor legacy fellowship to do that work so he can do it and still pay his rent at the same time dope y'all hear that dope that's what Moving forward, but reaching back is. That's what that is. The script. Well, we have a segment on the show called The Script where we ask our guests to basically kind of provide our listeners with some supplementary materials to support the conversation. So, like, are there... I mean, you you did mention some books earlier in the show, but is there any books or artists or films or movies that you feel like folks should check out that would bring them closer to the Amy Sherald world on canvas? Um, one of my favorite documentaries is by photographer and filmmaker Deborah Willis, and it's called Through a Lens Starkly. Through a Lens Starkly. Watch it on Amazon Prime. But it's about the history of photography and us, mm. right? You know, the invention of the camera and representation and uh I taught art in Baltimore City Jail and I shared this film with the guys there and it just like blew their minds because you really understand that if it wasn't for the invention of the camera, that you also understand the importance of photography and, you know, you can really understand why Frederick Douglass was like so into being photographed and like why that was so important because he realized that representation really, like images change the way people think. Right. Media. Yeah, media. Through a lens, starkly. All right. All right. So I'm starting a new segment with my artists where I will show you a piece of your work and I would love for you to just talk us through that piece. And since I have been so fortunate to be one of the people that you feel comfortable talking to, I'm very excited to do this. And so we're going to do a few pieces. Okay. So this is the first piece. Your man right here. I call him Black Garth Brooks, Barth Brooks. Um, But you call him, what's precious inside of him does not care to be known by the mind in ways that diminish its presence. In parentheses, all American. 
2017. So before we even get into him, please explain to me the titles because usually people's titles is like Black Man with Hat. <laughs> and you're giving us poetry with the pieces. Yeah, you know, it, it started with poetry. It started with a poet that I was partnered with by the Studio Museum like a long time ago that I had to make a painting. The poet wrote a poem. And in that poem, she had a line that was well-prepared and maladjusted. And I ended up naming my painting after that line because it really fit. And after that, I felt like it was just a really interesting way to tell a story and to speak to the work without instructing the viewer like what to think, you know? Mm. And I, I love that piece so much. It's one of my favorite, favorite paintings. But I think it starts with the moment when I was studying with this artist in Norway and his name is Odd Nerdrum. And um, I'm probably the only black person that's ever studied with him in the history of like, he's like the modern day Rembrandt. Wait, but how did you like find him? Is it because it, when you said that, it made me think of like Kill Bill and her going to study with Pai Mei. <laughs> she was like the only white woman that had ever gotten the chance to like study with Pai Mei and get a Hatai Hanzo sword. So like what made you go study with this Norwegian master? I found his book in the library at Maryland Institute College of Art where I was going to school and um, something about it. I don't know. Like it, it definitely wasn't the images because his palette is like very Norwegian. It's like grays and like, you know, very cloudy day-ish versus yeah. like, you know, I call it Caribbean palette. Yay. It was something about his work. I have no idea. Like I sought him out and it just so happened he came to speak at the school and I was introduced to him and he's like, what are you doing after school? And I said, I want to come work with you. And he said, okay, cool. Talk to my wife. And I'm like, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> Talk to my wife. <laughs> I don't want your man. I don't want your man. <laughs> All that. And then somebody asked me if I could give him a ride to the train station. And I said, yes, but I didn't have a car. But like, I really wanted to like that time. So that like, I was like running around trying to find somebody to borrow the car. So that happened. And I ended up going there and it like changed my life. But you see, I need to, I need everybody to listen. Now you see, that was innovation. It was like, you could have just easily been like, oh, I don't have a car, whatever. And that would have just been that. And let me tell yeah. you, car rides I have read are like very good spaces for connection by nature of the fact that you're basically in a moving, you're in a spaceship. Yeah. It's just y'all. It's just us, right. But, okay, I got sidetracked again. So I went over there and, um, you know, a lot of people were anti-American at that time because we had started the war that we just ended. And George Bush time. Yeah, George Bush time. And people saw me as an American. Trippy. I was like, interesting. <laughs> you know, because I felt like I had only been seen by my race. And I'd never really, like in Georgia, American flags don't make you feel warm and fuzzy. Like they just mean that you might be in a threatening situation. And it's weird because it's just the American flag. It doesn't even have to be the Confederate flag. And I still it's feel true. that way about it. So um, I was like, wow, they call me an American. Like, this is, I am an American, you know? Like, I really am an American. Like, I need to embrace that. I don't need to push it off because in doing so, I'm like disrespecting the ancestors. Like, it's really important that, um, for me, it was really important that I start to reclaim that. And that was the first thing that I did was like to make this painting because, I mean, I don't know about you, but every time I hear somebody talk about our forefathers, I'm like, they wouldn't be who they were without the ancestors doing the work. 
you know, like without enslaved people doing the work. So you, you, you got to tell the whole story and the blood on that flag is our blood, you know? So that's, I, I feel very strongly about that. So I'm not letting those crazies just be the ones that are controlling how I interact with something that was birthed from people that came over here and received nothing. And somehow managed to create everything. Right. Right. That's the fascinating part. You know, the godliness of Black folks in the ability to make something of nothing over and over and over and over and over again, you know? So this next piece, I love a hound's tooth. A clear, unspoken, granted magic. And all of these pieces, by the way, are from an exhibit that Amy did in St. Louis. And uh, this is a book that my mom got me because my mom buys me art books. That's like her thing. And I really love... I just, what I love about the women's faces in your pieces, like, their faces are always kind of like, but it's not stank as much as it's just like, you see it? Yeah. Yeah. So is that intentional? It's kind of intentional, yeah. I mean, going back to Deborah Willis, like, I guess more reading material, she also um, published a book called The History of the Black Female Body. And um, I came across that book in graduate school, and it really informed my perspective on us and all those images were taken inside profile and again mm. the, the, why i like the front-facing gaze because it's like a soft confrontation and a recognition mm. some portraits you might see them and they're passive so like the viewer and the model or the subject are not interacting at all you're just there to look at the subject right. but in my opinion they're there to be present with you and to have a a conversation about whatever it is that you want to talk about, right? They're present. They know they're working. They're working Even people. The Michelle portrait is, is she's she's based, she's leaning on her knee, like, talk, talk to me. What y'all got to say? Like, like that's her her pose even speaks to like as if she's conversing with the viewer or listening intently, like, you know, what are y'all, what y'all thinking? Yeah. Would you say that? Because I'm trying to give listeners like a point of reference. So would like, would the Mona Lisa be a passive portrait? No, she's she's pretty like coming yeah. at you, right? Those, you know, where the, the subject might be looking away or they might be peering out of a window or they might be peering mm. past you. Like the girl you with know? the painted earring. Yeah. Yeah. Painted veil. What is it? I can tell you every Nas record from Illmatic to Stillmatic. But painting titles, I'm like, you know, the one with the, um, you know, she got the blue, you know, and and, and there's a, they made a movie about it, you know, with the pearl, the pearl there, yeah, the girl with the pearl. <laughs> like, that's always, so then when I get to your titles, I'm just like, oh, she made it very difficult for me. <laughs> I love my own title sometimes. I was like, I'm glad you told me what that one was, because I was about to be like, what's the name of that? <laughs> so this is our last piece. And I love this piece because I'm, I grew up in Orlando, Florida, and it used to really be a thing to go and see the space shuttle go up. I mean, that was like a thing. And then my mom would always make a big thing of, man, man, this shuttle going up. 
the shuttle going up and everyone goes outside and you watch the shuttle go up and you wait for the sonic boom and it was a whole thing and this piece is called planes rockets and the spaces in between 2018 and so i would love to hear more about like what inspired this piece and um why the little boy is looking at the rocket and the young woman is looking at us it's two girls everybody thinks that's a little boy but she has on a denim skirt oh it looked like a boy with a high booty I know. <laughs> like a Trevor Noah booty. Yeah. Okay. It's two girls. You know what? Well, we didn't even get that close, but you're right. She does have on a denim skirt. You know, because we see a body and we like, oh, it must be a boy, even though black women have been rocking bodies from the beginning of time. Yeah. Um, so why is one looking at this? One is looking like, I just need to understand the space. I need to understand the whole thing because I love this piece. If I could afford it, I would buy this piece if it was available. I really, at that point, I think, I started to shift my focus because that was one of the first larger paintings that I had done. So up until that point, they had been like the the individual portraits. They're 54 inches by 43 inches. And um, I wanted to focus on a like an iconic American moment and something that represented American power. Damn, 100 by 67 inches. All right. Pretty tall. <laughs> I, I see the scaffold behind you. So I was like, oh, that's what that's about. Got it. Yeah, that's the fun part. So that was the beginning of, of that. So, so since then, I've made images that come from iconic American photographs, like I've recreated them. But that one was me recreating my own. And still at that point, I wasn't comfortable with having both of them facing the rocket ship. Like I needed one of them to acknowledge the presence of the viewer and make them either feel like they're not welcome or that they're welcome or that they're interrupting something. Right. But I think eye contact for me, like really, it brings a soul to the work that I think is really important. You know, not that I don't think like abstract work is important because I think that's probably some of the hardest painting that you can do. It's the most intuitive kind of painting practice that you can have. But I think figurative painting is like the soul food of mm. art like no matter how highbrow it gets or how conceptual it is where you're just like why is this banana taped to the wall like what's the meaning behind figurative work to me is like the soul food of like visual language and so I think for me that's why eye contact is really important because it connects you to the human in the painting and it connects you to your own humanity at the same time I see I do abstract I feel like it's straddles like I I can do portraits but it's not like my favorite thing um but I love eyes eyes and lips like yeah. are my favorite things to to put on canvas eyes and lips well my last question is you know when you're painting do you paint multiple pieces at a time do you focus on one is it a at this point now that you are the Amy Sherald do you find that there's a pressure to be more prolific how do you keep up with the grandeur of what you have created with your brilliance? Well, I am a slow painter, so I will never make more than 10 to 12 paintings a year. Safer to say 10 paintings a year. It allows me to stay connected to the work and to like enjoy what I'm doing. And painting is like only, I mean, there's so much that goes into making a piece before you start making the piece. <laughs> and that's like, finding what the model's going to wear. I mean, it takes time. Sometimes I might find, like I had, I had a dress for two years before I found the right model for it. And then that painting is able to come to life. How do you know it's the right model when you find them? It's like, 
it's, it's all intuitive. Like there's really no word. Just like how you recognize yourself in somebody like, or mm. yeah. Like when you see people, you, you, you meet your boyfriend or your husband or your girlfriend, yeah. it's like something about that person. And I guess they're, they're, they do have qualities that I call like they're, they're damp, which means like, like their souls feel a little weighted, but in a good way, you know? Yeah. Cause I have approached people and then like talked to them and I've been like, they feel like they've only been here once. There's something to a live soul versus like a brand new soul. <laughs> yes. It's necessary for that energy exchange that happens between the painter and the model that allows the painting to feel so real, even though it's not painted like hyper realism. You know, it's like right. uh, one good example of that is Alice Neal's portraits. If you've ever seen her work, she's a very stylized painter, but her paintings feel alive. Mm. Yep. It has to be rendered to like look like real life, like the soul of the work is there. And that's, I think that's like something that happens between the, the subject and the, and the painter that I think is pretty magical. Because once you, I could show you a painting that doesn't have it and a painting that does. It could be a landscape and you could see the difference. So some people have this magic touch and some people don't. It's hard to explain, but I have to, um, it, yeah, you can't explain No, it. you're explaining it. No, I, I definitely, it's the reason why some strippers get more dollars than others. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a thing. It's, a, it's a spark. You might call it charisma. Um, you might call it being tapped in, you know, but some folks just got that thing about them that resonates beyond just the surface. And then when you know that about yourself and you see it in another person, it's it's kind of like a, it's a touchstone, you know, and it's a ET phone home type moment. Like, oh, okay. I see you. We both not from here. Got it. Okay. <laughs> to me, that's what the feeling is, is when you're like, oh, so we both, the ship is going to take both of us. Okay. Because yeah. I feel like when I meet people, I'm like, oh, you're from here. So we're different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some some of us aren't from here and some of us are from here. And it's really just dope to get to speak to another alien. And I am so honored that you were be willing to give us your time and to talk to us just so in depth about your process and about your work. And you're like super cool, Ames. I don't know if you noticed, but like, you know, you got a swag about you, okay? Like, you got definite flavor swag. I feel like you was definitely in like, you was an extra in the Around the Way Girl video. Like, that's the energy you're giving. So, (laughs) (laughs) that's a compliment, so receive it. The last dose. So you do have the portrait tour going on. So can you please let people know how they can get an opportunity to view your work live and in full effect? It will be, I just know after November 6th, you'll be able to see it in LA at Los Angeles County Museum of Art and check the website for the dates. And then it's going to Atlanta and it might be going to Houston, but I'm not sure. So do you come with the piece? Like, do you, like, is it like a package deal? Like we get to see the piece and Amy? Not all the time. In LA, Kahinde and I are are being honored at the film plus art gala that they, that they have every year, along with Steven Spielberg. So that's why we're coming out for that. Okay. Light company. Cool. Yeah. Just, you know, MBD. 
But I didn't go to the Chicago opening, but I might go to the Atlanta opening, obviously, because I'm from Georgia. Oh, yeah. Like, you you got to do that just... Yeah. This is a big middle finger. Like, the petty in me is like, yeah, motherfuckers. Or you can come with a, a lighter soul and be like, I'm here to share with my community. Either way, I feel like it's the right choice. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And we will continue to support your work. And I can't wait to meet you in person. I can't wait to see your work in person. And um, and thank you for being the first artist in our Small Doses Artist Series. Star Games Avenue, a podcast, <clears throat> a podcast network.